Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, Peter Kadzis and I talk with Yawu Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner, about the biggest story in Boston politics right now. I'm talking, of course, about the scandal that's been brewing inside City Hall ever since John Lynch, a former employee at the Boston Planning and Development Agency, pleaded guilty to taking a $50,000 bribe from a developer and earning that money by convincing an unnamed member of Boston's Zoning Board of Appeal to support a variance extension on a project in South Boston. That extension ultimately allowed the developer to make an extra half a million dollars. The scandal is still unfolding, but wherever it ultimately leads, it raises troubling questions about the way development has worked in the city for decades. Take a listen. When you learned about John Lynch's guilty plea, what was your reaction? Bribes are somewhat uh, rare in government, city government, state government. They're old-fashioned, and it's sloppy. There's a lot more money to be made in things that are that fall within what's acceptable in our state ethics law. So were you surprised? That's what I'm inferring, but I could be wrong. Or And the reason I ask is when I went back and read a lot of the stuff that you have done, the reporting you've done mm. on the ZBA, I wouldn't have been surprised at all to hear you say right now, oh, I totally wasn't surprised by this. I saw this coming years ago. No, I mean, I, I, you know, a bribe is something, it's like something from decades past. So, you know, it's a little bit surprising. Like, why would somebody do that when there are so many other ways? And as we've learned, so many other ways that, uh, that Lynch was enriching himself. I mean, a bribe is sloppy. It's kind of hanging out there. Yeah, l- let me add some perspective here. When Chuck Turner was nailed by the feds, accused with bribery. I called a uh, real veteran of Boston City Hall, expecting him to blast Turner. And instead, he he said something like this. He said, ah, poor Chuck. He never got the memo. No one uses (laughs) cash anymore. You don't have to bribe anyone anymore. You just need a little imagination. There's all sorts of ways to work the system legally to get what you want. And so I'm seconding Yahoo's report here. Okay, so given that, if both of you saw this as kind of an antiquated, old school and crude way for for Lynch to be involved in influence peddling or the, the application of influence inside City Hall as the planning process worked its way forward, is it fair to say that the the idea that regulators would be working in concert with the people who they are supposed to regulate when it comes to development in the city of Boston was not a surprise at all. No, I mean, we've been following that. And, um, you know, again, most of what we've seen is, or pretty much all of what we've, what we've looked at in the last few years are things that are acceptable under a state ethics law. You know, people recusing themselves from votes, but having, do, you know, doing business with people who bring issues before them on the zoning board, that sort of thing. Very common, you know, and people sort of going back and forth between, you know, the public sector and the private sector. I mean, that happens at every level of government. It's problematic. I don't think the laws and the the regulations have sort of kept up with the pace of that. For people who haven't read the work that the banner has done on this, could you maybe pick just one example that 
stands out in your memory as particularly egregious when a project went forward, even though maybe it shouldn't have, because lines were ble- being blurred in a way that raises eyebrows when you go back and look at it. One project we looked at on Cedar Street in Roxbury, it's a uh, six-unit building that was built on a on a parcel of land. The abutters argued it was too small for six units because a, a significant portion of the parcel had a rock ledge that you couldn't build on. And uh, so it was certainly a question that ought to have gone you know, before the inspectional services department, somebody should have come out and said, you know, like ruled on it. And then, you know, the Zoning Board of Appeal would have heard that case. Instead, inspectional services, ISD said that, you know, they ruled that uh, it was- No variance large, required. No variance required. So it didn't have to go before the ZBA, which saves the developers a lot of steps. But it also sort of takes the power of the abutters away. When you say, I'm building this as of right, I have the right to build this on this land, it's large enough. The architect was James Christopher, and at that time, the head of ISD was his father, Buddy Christopher. James Christopher was running the architectural firm that Buddy Christopher co-founded, Roach Christopher Architects. Wow, isn't that a coincidence? (laughs) I, I have to say, looking into all this, the whole system just stinks, it is rife with conflicts of interest and why these appointments are made boggles the mind you know sometimes i might cynically say well what do you expect this is the way things work this is an open invitation to at a minimum favoritism and i have to say all throughout the city i talk to people who say if you are connected just a little bit you can get anything built. The zoning code is really not worth anything. And that's because, you know, of the the city hall policy of let's build our way into affordable housing. That's unfair to put it that way because most cities are realizing, have realized that that's one of the only ways you can do it. But this, it has clearly reached untenable untenable levels. Let me cite an old example, too. Uh, And I think it's good because it's old and it's not dramatic unless you happen to live there. And that's on the West Roxbury JP line, the Allendale Farm project. Now, as far as density goes, it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but the density violated the way it was zoned. And it just got steamrolled through. Take a look at that. Take a look at the two units that the Bay State Banner talked about. Again, you know, steamroll through the zoning. Take a look at the pending, I don't know whether they call it a tower or a skyscraper, the big building in the neighborhood between Chinatown and the Leather District. Now, there are three examples why do we have a zoning yeah, right. law? I mean, it seems as if the zoning law just kind of slows down the process. And it's, you know, the intention of it is to give uh, abutters, the people, you know, you bought a house and you have a vested interest in what gets built next to you. Is it going to block your sunlight? Are you going to take up parking spaces? Is the design going to be um, out of scale with what's already in the uh, in the neighborhood? You've invested in your home, so you have some. You ought to have some say, and that's what the process was designed to create. 
But, you know, as we've seen, it, it's subverted over and over again. And some neighborhood activists, you know, sort of dealing with the same set of players, including uh, Roach Christopher Architects, um, the late uh, developer Joe LaRosa, you know, they just kept bumping up into these kind of uh, unwinnable fights again and again. And it totally soured their belief, you know, that there was any kind of democracy. It, you know, I liken it to six wolves and one sheep debating what's for dinner. It's not <laughs> a democratic process. We should probably highlight, and I think it's implicit in everything that, that you two have said so far, but this is not unique to Marty Walsh's administration, right? This yeah. has been the MO going back through Tom Menino's two decades as mayor. That's my understanding anyway. Am I right Absolutely, about that? Yeah. Peter, you're... No, no, to a degree. The Menino administration in general was sensitive to neighborhood pressure. So I think smaller projects, it wasn't as heavy-handed with smaller projects. Big projects, too bad. <laughs> yeah. Now, am I correct in that? Generally, yes. Joe LaRosa, we first noticed Joe LaRosa because he was doing a lot of projects with a lot of opposition from neighbors. At that time, uh, Joe Feaster was the chairman of the Zoning Board of Appeal. He was also of counsel to a law firm that represented Joe LaRosa. He would recuse himself, you know, from those votes. But that's kind of like I recuse myself, wink, you know, and everybody else is like, OK, we approve this. Um, that happened again and again. Joe LaRosa had a terrific batting average building projects that his, you know, that the butters hated. Um, they hated him. He was rude. He'd sort of start his construction trucks up early in the morning. He drove his truck through a neighbor's, you know, front yard and destroyed the guy's plantings. And then when the guy came out and said, hey, what are you doing? You know, you're destroying my property. Joe Lewis was like, this is your property? Let me see a deed. He was like universally hated people. So I'm wrong what I'm yeah. saying about the Menino administration. I mean, that happened all under the Menino administration. Um, Feaster was uh, removed from the board, but it wasn't because of anything that he did as, a, as chairman of the board. It was because he didn't actually live in Boston. And, that, and when he did a project in the neighborhood where the house that he claimed as his property was, the abutters, I mean, the people who lived, you know, down the street said he doesn't live here. And when that came to light, <laughs> you know, he got bounced. That's um, incredible. But, you know, the, the larger projects um, was really where it was at with me. You know, he, he, I mean, it was a time when there was more vacant public land. The police station was built. You know, schools were being renovated. Suffolk Construction was a major player in that. They had the contract to do these this work, a lot of the work to build the police station and, you know, a lot of these other major projects. And uh, Suffolk Construction hired Menino's son, who was a full-time cop. He was a detective. He allegedly worked 40 hours a week for the Boston police and, tw you know, allegedly 20 hours for Suffolk Construction, in addition to pulling down 300 you know, in 10 hours of overtime in one year. Busy guy. Yeah, busy guy. And uh, he was a safety engineer for Suffolk Construction. That that was legal. That was the kind of deal that happened under under Menino. Menino himself, there's no indication that he enriched himself, but people around him were able to really profit off of the, uh, the uh, you know, his power as mayor. Well, that that's what I call the Buddy Cianci theory of city government, of city corruption. Cianci, for all his notoriety, and, and he did go to the federal pen, but he basically would allow people under him to shake others down. And as long as they sold enough tickets to his fundraisers, he looked the other way. Now, this is very similar to that. So when you talk about people 
close to Menino enriching themselves uh, through legally. This. Yeah. Who who would be uh, some examples? Well, I'm just saying, you know, I mean, Feaster and, and his law firm was yep. like the, the one instance a. of that, you know, Exhibit A. And then, you know, his son, you know, with this, you Got know, him. what people assumed to be a no-show job. Can't say that, you know, for a fact, you know, with, with uh, Suffolk Construction as a safety engineer, you know, that, that that's Exhibit 2. I mean, I think we could go down down the list. I mean, there there are people who, who were in his administration who sort of went into the development or construction field. You know, I, I think J- Joe Rull was has been working with City Realty, and perhaps you know he has relationships with people in City Hall that people like a firm like City Realty would find attractive. Joe Rull, who was, if I remember correctly, tell me if I'm wrong here, you two, in the Menino administration and in the Walsh administration. Correct, and he, he's the one who became a cooperating witness in the investigation into the um, uh, Boston calling shakedown. You take a few steps back and you see a lot of dots being connected here. You know, it's very important for most people to realize that a law degree in terms of real estate in Boston is almost like a license to steal. You know, it's it's a very handy piece of paper to have. All right. I'm glad that you mentioned Boston Calling because my sense is that this developing scandal, which seems to me not to have fully shaken out yet, it seems like it at least has the potential to be much more problematic politically for Mayor Walsh than Boston Calling was or is going to be. Maybe I'm wrong about that, just a sad journalist looking for drama where there isn't going to be any. But do you guys share my my take on where this could go? I do, because... Uh, the mayor doesn't have the prophylactic, the, the, the fig leaf of these are just hardworking pro-union guys looking out for blue-collar jobs and the pot-smoking, you know, beer-drinking rock fans should be able to pony up for that. This is about homes and homeowners vote. I remember many years ago talking to the, this is then-speaker Tom Finneran, and asking about how comfortable he felt in his own district. And he says, I feel perfectly comfortable because uh, my district's full of homeowners. Homeowners vote. That's why, that's why this is so potentially explosive for Mayor Walsh. These, it affects people's homes, you know, which is the single biggest investment almost, you know, anyone outside of the Back Bay and Beacon Hill have, and they can relate to it. And the amount of money involved, 50000 bucks, people may make that in a year, say, wow, that's a year's salary, you know. And for many Bostonians, that's a year's salary if they're lucky. So this is a very understandable, a very tangible sort of scandal. Adam, let me switch gears here. You've had experience in reporting on things where the mayor has proposed, like, blue ribbon solutions. Well, yeah, the one I was I was trying to, to get to the bottom of maybe a year ago, and I, I never succeeded, was the top-to-bottom review of the city's tourism and special events management that was announced, I believe, on the heels of the Boston Calling indictments. If my memory is correct, that was three and a half years ago. 
we have yet to learn what the all-star panel, which I think was was actually working in concert with Brian Kelly, the attorney who's going to be working on the review of the zoning board. Um, we still don't know, unless I missed something, what their conclusions were or what changes are going to be made in, in the uh, wake of them doing their work. These are all people pretty close to him. Yeah. Well, Buddy Christopher, for example, uh, purchased Mayor Walsh's house when Mayor Walsh moved uh, from one neighborhood of Dorchester to the other, right? Right. Yabu, you're pursing your, or you're, well, I, you're yeah, furrowing your brow. You know, I, at this point, I've not seen anything that makes, that leads me to believe that Buddy Christopher did anything that was illegal or not in, you know, not, uh, not in compliance with state ethics laws. And same with Mayor Walsh. I think it's just people around him. And so that, you know, we have uh, an aggressive U.S. attorney who's um, targeting people in the Walsh administration you know, it, it, Walsh has sort of walked into this situation where, you know, it's business as usual in City Hall. It's nothing that's indicative of, you know, that's, you know, particularly indicative of his style of leadership. Yet it's, you know, it's starting to blow up around him because of this, you know, this this U.S. attorney. No, and let, let me state that I'm not suggesting the mayor in any way, shape or form is involved with this, nor am I suggesting that Buddy Christopher is in any way, shape or form. But what is so troubling is this group of men sort of represent, uh, you know, in the idiom of the streets or something, something of a posse, not a gang as in a gangster sense. You know, they're a gang of guys. They're busy scratching each other's backs or looking the other way while a back may be scratched. It's really pretty troubling because a lot of this, what I would consider corruption, is legal. The 50000 bucks I tweeted somewhat sarcastically about um, the piece in the Dorchester Reporter recounting a big scandal in the Kevin White administration uh, many years ago. And I said, oh, that involved $50,000. But at that time, $50,000 was real money. The mayor has changed his tune pretty quickly on this because first he came out and said that he was confident there had been no wrongdoing at the ZBA. And then within the span of a few days, he is committed to a total overhaul of the ZBA, even though he has said he can't talk to ZBA members to figure out what has been going on. And even though the results of the investigations that he's announced are, you know, presumably not going to be in for a very long time. Is that quick change of tune a sign that he recognizes this as a big political threat, do you think, Yawa? I think so. I, I imagine that, um, and, you know, I mean, surely Lung in the uh, Globe, you know, sort of referenced uh, the feeling that um, things are going to where the white administration was when, you know, a U.S. attorney named Bill Weld was, uh, you know, had, had trained his sights on them, that, um, you know, if this continues, it's going to get a lot worse in City Hall. So I think it's prudent of Walsh to get out ahead of this. And by the way, not only was Bill Weld the U.S. attorney, his point person, his point man on those investigations was a fellow who was now Judge Wolf. Get out. No, Judge, I didn't know this. Judge Wolf. Mm -hmm. And see, the Kevin White thing, though, is very, is very different from this. I don't think, even though the mayor deserves severe criticism for allowing a situation like this to develop, he in no way is there any evidence that he's an architect or the, you know, constructing that situation. And I must say that 
it's clear to me, at least, that once he found out, presumably, that something happened, he's handled it perfectly. He should not be interviewing people. He should be above reproach, and so far he has been. But the thing with Kevin White is the scandals in the White year, Bill Weld and Judge Wolf never really got to the bottom of them. There was a big difference between then and now. Kevin White used to like to go to New York City. The reputation was he always paid cash for everything when he was there. One day, um, it was after a big blizzard, I remember, I went into uh, J Press, you know, the preppy store near Grand Central Station, the loft where the tailors work. I I just heard all sorts of low-level commotion coming from there. And I, I asked the salesman, what's going on? He says, it's the damnedest thing. He said, yesterday, a bunch of FBI agents showed up with a warrant, and they're going through all our records. You know, I guess some guy named Kevin White, who they tell me is the mayor of Boston, has bought a lot of clothes here and Incredible. paid cash. A couple of months later, my brother Richard worked down south for... Uh, Chamber of Commerce or a big industrial thing or something, was in town. For some reason, I was meeting him at the Pierre Hotel. Maybe his fancy corporate employer was putting him up there. When I met him in the lobby, he said, you'll never guess who I just saw. And I said, what do you mean? He says, Kevin White. I said, what's he staying here? He says, yeah. And he said he did a double take when he saw me. Now, the reason he did a double take is my brother, who went over to the dark side of corporate public relations, was NPR's first statehouse reporter when he worked at WBUR. So White saw him, recognized him. Had a little mini panic attack, maybe. So I'm just saying there, there was widespread suspicion of, all sorts of kickbacks and stuff during the days of the white administration that in subsequent administrations, uh, there were no reason to because you could do it all legally. The bigger problems that we have now, the campaign finance, uh, that in cities like Boston, real estate is the most valuable asset. Um, so you don't have health insurance people like buying off politicians or anything like that. But, you know, you developers, people in the real estate industry, uh, real estate brokers, architects, the lawyers, particularly who, who, who uh, put these ge- deals together for them. They together constitute the largest block of political contributions that go to um, city council, uh, city councilors, into the mayor. And you know, until there's a way to handle that, to um, I mean, I don't think people. I, I've not seen anything that's really even assessed, like what percentage of you know political contributions come from these developers. Um, you know, the, the elected officials then turn around and use their campaign accounts. If you look through, you know, their expenditures, their credit card records, they put gas in their cars, they go on trips, they uh, spread influence around by you know buying uh, things for you know uh, different groups in their within their districts. Back but to Peter's point about it, it being legal. It's right? all legal. legal. License to do it. Yeah. A we, license to steal. Exactly. We know this because it's reported, and it's not stealing. It's you know. Or essentially redistribution of the uh, of the largesse of uh, of these c- contributors. Although, like, I mean, if you look at some of these people making car payments off of their campaign accounts, you could argue that that's not a campaign expenditure. But I've not seen anybody make that argument. I mean, that's you know 
problem number one. Problem number two, the composition of the Zoning Board of Appeal itself, where, you know, most of the people on there have some kind of, you know, vested interest in real estate being built and sold. And, um, you know, that board, you know, with uh, seven people, you know, who are like who are or six people who are, you know, real estate or affiliated with the real estate industry and one person who represents neighbors, as far as we can tell, doesn't have any ties to the real estate industry. The process itself is so skewed in favor of developers against the abutters and the people who live in the neighborhoods that, um, you know, that has to change. And those are issues that don't have to do so much with corruption. It's nothing a U.S. attorney could suss out. There'll be no prosecutions. But until that system changes, you know, you're going to have problems like what we've seen, you know, in, in the newspapers today. And that's going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Yahoo Miller for chatting with me and Peter. And of course, to you for taking the time to listen. Do subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already, please. And get in touch with us with suggestions, comments, or criticism. On Twitter, I'm at Riley Adam, and Peter is at Kadzis. You can also get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org. Our sound czar for this episode was Gary Mott. Week in, week out, we get essential production help from him, Andrew Massawa, John Parker, and Doug Sugarts. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.